Our reading for today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For today's service, we'll continue to uh, make it a little different. If you have not already, or if you reverted back to gallery view, please set your uh, Zoom to speaker view. The Lord be with you. Welcome. It's great to see everyone. Actually, I can't see any of you because this is a recording. Um, as you can also see, I'm not wearing my usual suit and tie. And you might be thinking that this is a Halloween costume and that I'm dressed as an, um, I don't know, an average middle-aged man. That's fine. Um, but actually, as some of you uh, know already, uh, I'm in Buffalo to be with my father who had to go to the hospital briefly. He's fine, um, but I didn't bring a suit with me. And so that's why I'm dressed the way I am today. Uh, I also don't have reliable internet where I am, and so I've had to pre-record this sermon. That means because of my very limited technical skills, there will not be any PowerPoint slides to accompany this message, and so you have to pay attention the old-fashioned way by listening more carefully. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this day and um, the technology that allows us to gather, uh, even in this fashion, to come before you and to have this worship together. Uh, we want to pray, especially today, uh, in light of the elections coming up this week, God, for uh, unity, for peace. Uh, God, we pray for healing uh, upon this nation and help us, God, to be instruments of your peace. Now, God, in the hearing of your word today, uh, help us to receive your word, to be blessed by your word, and then to go about and bless others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is now the sixth in a series of eight sermons I'm preaching on the Beatitudes of Jesus. So far, we've heard that the poor in spirit are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that those who mourn are blessed because they shall be comforted, that the meek are blessed because they will inherit the earth, that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And last week, that the merciful are blessed because they shall receive mercy in turn. And today, Jesus teaches us Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. C.S. Lewis said, 
in the problem of pain. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. So let me do this in reverse today and start at the end. Do you want to see God? Do you have a desire, as the psalmist says, to behold the beauty of the Lord? Have you asked God, as Moses asked, show me your glory? Now, as Moses learned, and as we all know, no one can actually see God and live. So what might seeing God mean? Well, in English, to see means not only to physically see something, but also to perceive or to grasp an idea. For example, if you're the type who likes to eat your ramen with a hard or soft boiled egg intact, and someone teaches you that you can actually stir and mix the egg into the broth so you get a much richer broth, you'd say, oh, I see, meaning I get it now. My eyes have been opened to something better. It's the same in the Greek language. To see God means to understand God. It means to perceive God's presence and working in the world. Don't you want that? Wouldn't it be good to have the confidence of God's presence right now? Wouldn't it be good to see and be awestruck by God's glory in the world? Wouldn't it be thrilling to see God's will unfold in the circumstances of your life? To see God, that is to know God, is the end of all things. Jesus said in John 17, and this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God. That is to see, to perceive, to understand, to know in the, the deepest sense who God is. And to know Jesus is to know God. As it says in the Gospel of John, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he that is Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has made God known to us. So to know Jesus is to see God. Remember when Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father? Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see God. And John reassures us, that one day we shall see Jesus. 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall know him. That's the goal, to see God. And Jesus says, those who are pure in heart are blessed because they will experience this. I think for many people, this is the blessing that they are least assured of. Most of us know what it is, at least occasionally, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to show mercy. But it would be hard for any self-reflecting, honest person to say that they are pure in heart, even in the best of moments. It's like humility. The moment you think you've attained it is the precise moment when you've actually lost it. In thinking about purity, I was reminded of the old commercials for ivory soap. I don't know if they still run these ads anymore, but at one point they used to tout the fact that their soap was 99.44% pure. That's pretty pure. I remember as a kid thinking, wow, that is so pure. We got to buy that soap. I was a marketer's dream, by the way, back then. 
It didn't occur to me until much later to ask the question, pure what? 99.44% of what? Soap? What is soap? I'm told that soap is essentially the salt of a fatty acid. So does that mean that nearly all of ivory is fatty acid? What's the rest? I mean, it's all sort of just chemicals anyway, isn't it? Whatever they're labeling pure or impure, it's just it's really the same thing. What if you were to be 99.44% pure in heart? Would that be enough purity to see God? Or is being pure in heart an absolute yes or no, an either or, that if you have even 0.00001% of impurity, you are not pure in heart? I guess it may depend on what you think of as purity, as its primary quality. Perhaps for some of you, purity uh, is a naivete or innocence. Some of you may think of as a sexual purity, primarily, and chastity. Others of you may think about sincerity. And perhaps others of you think it's a sanctified or perhaps even a sinless life. Well, in the Bible, purity seems to have two essential meanings. First, purity is cleanliness, as in cleansing from dirt, filth, or contamination. It's purity like Purell, getting rid of germs. It's the word that describes dirty clothes that have been washed clean or grain that have been carefully sifted to remove all the chaff. In this sense, it's also described metals that have been refined by fire until they were free of all impurities. And it was even used to describe an army that got rid of all of its unfit and cowardly soldiers until only the elite soldiers remained. As you know, there are chapters upon chapters about ritual cleaning and purity in the Old Testament. Much of the furnishings of the tabernacle and later the temple, for example, were to be covered in pure gold. The incense and olive oil used in worship were also to be pure. Even the priests who served were to do so after a time of personal purification. Similarly, in the New Testament, heaven is described symbolically as a city of pure gold, and near the altar flows a river of pure water. No one, we are told, can enter the New Jerusalem with any impurities. Why? Because God is pure. Or synonymously, God is holy, and his eyes cannot look upon evil. God says, be holy, for I am holy. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Because of this, the Pharisees and others spent a lot of time trying to be ritually clean. But Jesus said, it's not about looking pure on the outside, but about actually being pure in your innermost being. He condemned the Pharisees because they were like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appeared beautiful, beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So one meaning of purity is related to the idea of cleanliness or holiness. The other meaning of purity is, in this sense, to be unmixed, unadulterated, having no double allegiance. In other words, purity in the second sense has to do with integrity or singleness of purpose or mind. It's what Jesus was getting at, I think, when he said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Purity de uh, demands a devotion to one. You shall love the Lord your God and him only with all of your heart. It cannot be divided. You must love with your whole being. As Joshua and the, private, and the prophet Elijah demanded of their people, choose this day whom you will serve. And how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Some of you old timers may remember the 1991 movie, City Slickers. It's a comedy about three middle-aged friends who are going through some personal crises and decide to go on a two-week cattle run for a change of pace. They meet a tough guy named Curly who leads the adventure and in an off in an often quoted scene, he and Mitch, one of the three men, have this exchange. Curly asks Mitch, do you know what the secret of life is? He then points his index finger to the sky. Confused, Mitch responds, your finger? Curly tells him, just one thing. One thing. You stick to that and the rest don't mean doo-doo. Mitch then asks, but what is the one thing? And Curly smiles and points his finger back at Mitch and says, that's what you have to find out. It's true. You have to find out the one thing around which you will organize your life, a purpose or a call, a mission. In the movie, the one thing turns out to be rather predictable, family. That's nice. Family is important but it cannot be the one thing. It is not going to ultimately fulfill or satisfy. Maybe Curly didn't realize it, but Soren Kierkegaard famously said the very same thing. In fact, he wrote a book with this title, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. I think that's very insightful. He argues that Christians are only pure when they renounce all other things and pursue the one thing. And what is that one thing? It is the truth of God. To be pure of heart is to be singularly focused on God. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 27, one thing, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I remember a while ago, mission statements were all the rage. I don't know if people and organizations still do that, but I remember we spent uh, quite a bit of time as a church coming up with ours, and I remind you of it every Sunday. It helps us to focus. It's one way of thinking about purity of heart and keeping our attention on Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that because of the one thing you are obsessed about, everything else in life gets neglected. It's just the opposite. The one thing is the organizing principle around which everything else derives their meaning and enjoyment. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Philippians. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So purity of heart gets at the core of one's being. That's what the heart symbolizes. As you know, in English, the heart is the center primarily of our emotions. We say things like, my heart is heavy or my heart is broken. 
But in the Hebrew mind, heart is much more inclusive. For example, it includes the mind, as in Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin, ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds, and be silent. We don't usually associate pondering in our hearts, but they did. Heart also includes the will. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira that Pastor Dohi told us about a little while ago? They conspired and lied about how much they had sowed their land for. And the apostle Peter realized that they were lying and asked, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. If we were to look up all the passages with the word heart in the Bible, we would see that the heart is very broad and inclusive and refers to the entirety of one's being and not just emotions. John Stott summarizes purity of heart in this way. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. So purity of heart is not a matter of just being emotionally pure, but it involves all of you, the core, the center of who you are. And this is what God sees. When the prophet Samuel was looking to anoint the next king of Israel, he went to the house of Jesse. And when he saw Eliab, he thought this must be the king because he was tall and handsome. But God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, on the heart, the whole being. Jesus says those who are pure in heart, holy, singularly devoted to God in their entire being are the ones who will see God. Let me just make one reflection with you this morning. When it comes to purity of heart, there is an inherent paradox that we must live with. St. Augustine wrote this in his Confessions. Give what you command and command what you give. Give what you command and command what you give. On the one hand, we can never achieve purity of heart by our efforts. We can never will ourselves to do it. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Jesus said in Matthew 15 that it is out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And rightly did Martin Luther admit that he was more afraid of his own heart than he was of all the Pope and all of his cardinals. You and I cannot achieve purity of heart on our own with our own efforts. It must be given and received as a gift by God. It's what the psalmist prays for. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's calling upon God to do the purifying and the cleaning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You must do the work, O Lord. In Psalm 86, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It is God who must do it. And here's the good news. God does the cleaning 
and makes you pure in heart. It's the promise God makes in Jeremiah 32. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go well then for them and for their children after them. And again, in Ezekiel 36, a new heart also will I give, give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. So on the one hand, purity of heart is entirely a gift of God. Yet on the other hand, and paradoxically, we must also pursue it in obedience to God's command. God himself entreats us in Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Purity of heart, like much of our discipleship, is both a gift and a responsibility. We must entreat God to cleanse our hearts as the Psalms teach, because only God can do that. But in addition to just asking God, we must also choose to pursue purity in partnership with God's spirit. First Thessalonians 4 reminds us, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a pure or holy life. And Titus 2 exhorts us to say no to ungodliness. This is our response to what God has done for us. First John 3 says that everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as God is pure. Now, there are a number of ways that we can purify ourselves to seek purity of heart. But the most important one is to abide in the word of God. Psalm 119 asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to God's word. In, first, uh, in John 15, Jesus told his disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And Ephesians 5 tells us that God plans to make his church holy or pure by the washing with water through the word. This makes sense, right? Because it is the scriptures that testify of who God is and what God has done. It is through God's word that we can perceive or see God. Listen now to God's word from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You see, those who seek God have aligned their entire lives to God's ways. Their hearts are pure. They have not retreated away from the dangers or temptations or the uncleanliness of the world. Rather, in the world, they have responded with truth, with clean hands and a pure heart. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I encourage you, church, let's be the church that has been both made pure in heart by the love of God and those who seek him, those who seek the face of the Holy One of Israel 
with all of our undivided hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we offer up this prayer um, that was made by Soren Kierkegaard. So may you give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing, to the heart, sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will, purity that wills one thing. In prosperity, may you grant perseverance to will one thing. Amid distractions, collectedness to will one thing. In suffering, patience to will one thing. God, help us to be pure in heart, for only you can do it. And empower us to pursue it with undivided hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.